Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We have Georgia on our mind throughout today's show. From a coloring book developed with the State Tourism Board inviting you to explore Georgia, to a photographer's pictures of darkened theaters in our area, and a six-stories-high mural in downtown Atlanta celebrating the heroism of Congressman John Lewis. First, an updated version of a popular concert series in DeKalb County. Callenwold's Jazz on the Lawn is a favorite summer activity in Atlanta. This year, the concert series will continue with important modifications. Andrew Keenan is the executive director of Callenwold. He joins us now with jazz musician and local treasure, Joe Granston. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Lois. How are you, dear? Great to be here. Well, Andrew, would you tell us how you came to the decision to continue jazz on the lawn this year? Well, it was a lot of effort, actually, because I wasn't sure if we could pull it off or not. And uh, I needed to have physical proof that we could have the proper amount of distancing between everyone. So we'd have six feet at least between all the different parties. So we literally set up a full seating chart for jazz on the lawn and we created pods for all the guests on the lawn and then separated out tables down in our VIP section and, and mapped it all out completely. What can you tell us about this pod system? It was inspired by, uh, I think it was out in San Francisco. I saw some images of people in the park and they had put together these big round circles. And we're doing ours a little bit differently. We've created 25 square feet of squares for folks. And so uh, we just stapled tape down in, into the ground and it creates a square and people are going to be required to sit inside the square, but they can uh, keep like coolers and, and so forth on the outside of the pod. Joe, you will be performing the last night of the festival. We get to hear you every day on City Lights with the opening theme and the closing music. And of course, have had the joy of hearing you perform in person many times over the years. What have the past few months been like for you as a musician and performer? Oh boy, it's been, uh, it's been pretty challenging, pretty, pretty difficult. A little depressing. Um, I mean, you get. You, I've gotten things done. For instance, I've been practicing my trumpet uh, more than I have since college, and I'm almost 50 years old. So I've been playing hours and hours a day and getting back to the fundamentals of the horn and 
and working on things that that I should have worked on years and years ago. So from that perspective, I've 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 had plenty of time to um, kind of redevelop my my embouchure and, and my chops and keep everything you know strong. But from a, a creative standpoint, as a musician and a financial standpoint, as a musician, it's been extremely difficult and and uh, like I said, a little bit depressing. Uh, not to be with other musicians, not to have a live audience uh, applaud for you, um, not to be able to interact with a crowd, not to be able to create music on the spot. So uh, it started out the first couple months of uh, the uh, pandemic was almost like a little bit of a relief because I've been fortunate enough to average 340 or 45 gigs per year for 10 or 12 years now. So the break, uh, although there was plenty of people suffering, the break for me was nice for about a month. And then, uh, then it turned into I'm ready to get back to work. And it's been it's been a struggle. Uh, it's August now, and I'm and I'm starting to work again. A lot of outdoor uh, performances that are socially distanced and safe. So it's nice to get out again. But yes, it's 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 been been a little weird. I got to be honest. Oh yeah, uh, we've talked about this on the program with musicians, actors, dancers. You need an audience to complete what you do. And it's devastating without the live response. Will you be performing with the entire band at Callenwald? Um, not this time. Eventually, we're gonna we're going to do that. This time will be uh, just like I did last year. It's it was so positive and and wonderful last year. Uh, this the show Andrew had mentioned. We're going to go the same route. We have our, our special guest, the great Robin Lattimore, who's one of the finest jazz and soul and gospel singers I think I've ever met. She lives here in Atlanta, and uh, she was a real proud favorite when she came up and joined us. So she's uh, she's on the bill with us, along with folks you you know, um, uh, staples in the Atlanta jazz community. For instance, Neil Starkey on the bass and John Sanford on, on tenor sax. Chris Burroughs is playing drums, and, and from New Orleans, the great Tyrone Jackson on the piano. Now, will you sing in addition to playing your horn? I will. I, I, I love to sing. It's, it's always difficult to sing when you have somebody like Robin singing also. <laughs> so, he's so powerful and strong. But, you know, my, my, um, my singing chops have improved a little bit as well because I've been practicing that during this time period. But I love to sing. I love to know the lyrics of the songs that we're performing. And it also gives my, uh, my lip a chance to rest. <laughs> Now when whippoorwills call and evening is nigh, I will hurry to my, to my blue heaven. It's just a turn to the right and a little white light will lead you to my, yes, to my blue heaven. You're gonna see a smiling face and a fireplace and a cozy room. Well, how far away will the performers be from the closest audience pod? I'm, I'm guessing, but it's probably about 14 feet. I imagine that that's probably conservative. The way our stage is, is set up and down by the amphitheater, it, it's it's sort of sunken down. It's more formalized with granite and and grass, so it's it goes up in in different stages. But I, I believe it's about fourteen feet. Clearly, you have safety in mind doing this. And Joe's concert with 
Robin Lattimore will be the culminating event. You've got quite a lineup beginning on the 14th with Bob Baldwin. Do you want to talk about some of the other concerts? Oh, yeah. It's, it's um, you know, well, of course, Bob has, Bob has returned several times uh, because he's, he has quite a following. Um, and of course, he's also has a, a radio show as well, um, which always helps. But um, uh, we had Eddie Lopez last year uh, and, his, and his wife, Mai, uh And it was the first time they had performed at, at Collinwald. And it was an absolutely fantastic show. Everybody got up and danced, and it was just a lot of fun. And so we brought him back again this year. And he is, uh, and ticket sales, I have to say, are, are quite robust, um, much more than how we started out last year. I think word got out. Um, so that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. That is with the Orchestra Makubo, the Latin night. Will the entire orchestra play? I I believe so. I mean, that's what uh, Eddie is Eddie's telling us. I don't. I haven't heard any anything different at this point. And then, uh, um, of course, we've got uh, Carla Harris. Joe, you can speak to Carla probably better than anyone because you've performed with Carla. But uh, I've seen her. I saw her at uh, City Winery last year, um, and was just kind of blown away and and asked if she could perform this year and so that's that's going to be a lot of fun and then we have ruby vale and the sulfonics coming she's also new colin wall oh she's she's a sweetheart and a wonderful performer And of course, Joe, the legendary Joe Granston. <laughs> <laughs> we think so. It's so refreshing to hear about plans for live music and um, all the safety considerations you have. I wish you good luck with this series and Andrew, Joe, Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Lois. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, Lois. Great to hear your voice. Musician Joe Cranston and Andrew Keenan, the executive director of Kallenwald Fine Arts Center. Jazz on the Lawn begins Friday, August 14th. Photographer Michael Boatwright has a passion for music, dance, and theater. He's using his own art to raise awareness for the crisis facing live performance. And he joins us now to talk about his project, Dark Houses Atlanta. Michael Boatwright, welcome to City Lights. Hello, uh, Lois. Nice to be here today. Would you tell us about the inspiration behind Dark Houses Atlanta? I'm the photographer for Drama Tech Theater Company at Georgia Tech, and they keep me young. They really do keep me young. And so when this whole thing hit, the wheels started coming off pretty quickly for live performance. Somewhere around the second week of March, pretty much, seems to be universal talking to to theaters around town. And my own personal response to the COVID crisis was, what can I do? How can I make, a, how can I make an impact? How, what can I do with my own voice? And um, I've had friends, uh, I have a friend down in South Georgia that did a bunch of 
done something like 300 portraits of frontline uh, healthcare and workers in his community. And I considered going down to the protests downtown and, and they were just not my thing. They just didn't resonate with me. And one day I, I honor my creative space, my studio every, when I come into it every day with a, by meditating and like a Tibetan bell ringing one day, it actually the beginning of July was like, go photograph the ghost lights. Uh, most people don't know what a ghost light is, but it was like, go photograph the dark theaters to show people what, what's happening in the theater right now, because a lot of people in the theater are out of work. And it's different than, you know, folks who were laid off from regular jobs because theater workers are primarily self-employed or technically the term is 1099 employees. They don't um, have a steady paycheck um, they don't get a W-2 form every year. They don't qualify for unemployment. So they were basically subsisting on the $600 a week they were getting from the CARES Act back in March, and that money ran out. And so um, they're kind of in dire straits. Worse, the theaters themselves, which are primarily based on, on subscriptions, um, aren't bringing in those, you know, they're not making ticket sales. Most are right now surviving off of grant money, but those grants are starting to dry up as well. So here's a very important part of our culture, which people kind of have forgotten because we've been so focused on, on the impact in our personal lives of the COVID crisis. I mean, we have such a rich culture here in Atlanta that it's really hurting. If you would tell us how you are approaching photographing each venue that is part of the Dark Houses Atlanta series. Do you set up lighting? So it's interesting to me that I, first of all, I started this off not having any idea really what I was doing other than I photograph in the theater and I typically photograph in the dark, but I usually photograph with stage lighting. I typically work with the lighting director before I photograph a, a preview performance for archival photography. But I knew that there was not going to be a lot of light cast by the ghost lights. And I still kind of had this idea in my head that everybody was going to have ghost lights. I found out quickly that a lot of theaters these days don't even have a ghost light any longer. Um, typically, they just have some form of work lights or low-level house lighting. Would you explain a ghost light for the uninitiated. Yeah, I think ghost light is a really cool term. The, the ghost light traditionally in the theater, and this primarily was theaters that had what's known as a proscenium stage, which is the traditional above the floor stage where there's actually a drop off. And in the old days, you might be walking through a stage and trip over something that someone left laying around or fall off the, the, the lip and kill yourself. And so it was a good idea to leave a light on somewhere in the stage. Well, theater lore being what it is, the whole break a leg and all the other theater superstitions, we'll always find a use for something practical and uh, basically says that the ghost light, and it's called the ghost light because it's on the stage to entertain the ghosts so that they will remain on the stage and play at nights instead of wrecking havoc throughout the rest of the theater. Aha. So it's called a ghost light to, for the ghosts to have something to play with when they perform on stage. And in terms of your photography? So it turns out the ghost light is a very small, typically maybe a hundred watt light bulb. And sometimes the ghost light is quite extravagant. There's some actually some very cool ghost lights I've seen in some of the theaters now that I've been to, typically it's just like an old lantern that's maybe six or seven feet tall with a bare light bulb on top of it, 100 watt light, which is not a lot of light in a very black room, large typically, if you're talking 500 seats, that light dissipates very quickly. So there's almost no light in the theater with respect to the ghost light. And one of the things that I learned kind of quickly as we were trying to, to make this story we, I say we, as I was just kind of working with the different theater directors, talking about what their backstories were, was the real story has to do with the fact that the seats are empty, that there's nobody there. And so 
rather quickly, I realized that one thing the ghost light does do is it lights the stage, but it doesn't light the house very well. So I kind of had to give up the aesthetic of only the ghost light fairly quickly. And typically when I go into a house, the first thing I'll ask the production manager or the house manager or the managing director, whoever's unlocked the doors and let me in. And then a lot of times that's literally what they did. They hadn't been in the theater in weeks and they unlocked the doors to let me in would be, is there, can you put your, are your house lights on a dimmer? Because I wanted to have enough light in the house to actually be able to see the seats and to see that the seats were empty but also still to give the appearance of the house. A dark house is an actual term, which means nobody's performing. Of the 25 stages, theaters actually, because there's about 30 stages, because some of the theaters have multiple stages, there's a conservative number of approximately 14,000 seats empty just in the 25 stages that I photographed. Think about that for a second. Let's just take a theater season of five shows and let's take a lowball number of $30 a ticket. That's a $50 million impact on the economy, just in the empty seats in the theaters of Atlanta of the 25 theaters that I've photographed so far. Mm. Would you tell us which theaters, which houses and venues you have partnered with? Well, so far I've photographed 25 theaters. And the first two that I photographed were the first stage in Drama Tech because of my association with, with Georgia Tech. And then the Rialto and the Balzer. I neglect by not making a shout out to artistic director Melissa Fulger from Drama Tech, who also does a lot of work around town because she has been my guiding force for this whole thing. And she sent out a note, just a note saying, here's what Mike's doing are you interested? And the response was just like almost immediate and profound. The first impression one gets looking at your photos of the dark houses is eeriness, you know, absence, silence where there should be vibrant sound and empty seats and a darkened stage where there should be people who are engaged and excited. What is it like for you, having worked with many of these theaters as part of your business photographing for theaters and visiting them in these empty, darkened states now? Lois, I think the the goal of every artist is to convey the feelings that they feel. And the feelings that I feel when I walk into it, you you got right off. And that's the eeriness of being in these empty theaters. Uh, Usually there might be another person or two. Um, Some theaters actually were a little busier than I expected. They were making, in some cases, they were making good use of their time to, for instance, do some necessary repairs. But I always noticed the quiet, particularly when I would need to shut the back doors where light's spilling in from the outside um, because those doors aren't open when we're in performance. So just to get that darkness and when those doors close, it's like just this dead quiet. And then you start to notice that in some theaters, because no one had been there for five, six weeks, there's a musty smell that you start to notice as well. And there's a, in a, in a sense, there's a sadness because there's a beauty. Each theater has its own unique beauty, which I've been in a lot of theaters around town. The houses are so vibrant and beautiful just on the, of themselves. Each has its own character, but it's lonely, it's quiet. Mm. So ultimately, what do you want the viewer to take away from these photographs of dark houses, Atlanta? Well, what I hope that people will realize is a few things. First thing I hope is people remember what they're missing. This is an important part of our culture, and we're in a moment in our history where we've kind of pushed that culture kind of to the side. And and it's easy to forget you know, that when the hustle and bustle of our lives are going on and we're just worried about not getting sick that, oh my gosh, this is something that's important to us. And we've 
neglected to pay attention to it. Secondly, I hope people realize that there are people whose very livelihoods have over many, many years depended on entertaining us and they don't have that opportunity now. Um, they just can't play. And it's really profound when each person has this hope that says, we're going to open again. I was impressed with the number of theaters who are working with the Emory Nursing Program to come up with safe ways of opening their theaters so that they can continue to perform. Actors' equity still struggling with how they can get their actors safely on the stage. We all want that to happen, and that's going to have to take some energy from the community, not just from the players and the technicians and the craftspeople themselves. So, Michael, do you think ultimately is one of your goals with these photographs to inspire people to donate to theaters and venues? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing with these photographs is I'm making them available as I photograph a theater. I'm making it available to that theater for their own appeals. I'm finding that the theaters themselves have a good subscriber, usually have a pretty good subscriber base and an excellent email group or social media presence. And I'm offering the images to them so that they can say, boy, we wish that you were in this seat right here. We miss you. Beyond that, it's also just the awareness that, that those seats are empty and to then be able to give folks who want to help a call to action. And there are a small handful of, of groups that are helping the artists. There's a few funds and, and we're linking to those as I become aware of them because there are just not very many. The best way folks can help right now is to help their local theater and then also to look on the website where I'm collecting this information and starting to point it back out to folks. I saw that in late July you were featured as part of the Georgia Tech Office of the Arts Project, Technically Creative. Would you tell us about the program and about your virtual discussion? Well, that was fun. I graduated from Georgia Tech in 1982 when I was at Georgia Tech, I was a computer science major, and you wanted to uh, basically get out of every humanities class that you could. You had to have a certain number of humanities credits, but nobody wanted to take the humanities classes. It's kind of exciting now to see that Georgia Tech is actually very active in the arts, starting with the creation, the building, and the beautiful programs done at the first center and Drama Tech, which has actually flourished under uh, Melissa Folger's direction, those are active, creative things. But on a whole nother level, and I think what was behind the whole interview was that technical people also have an artistic side to them. And that, that to be a well-rounded engineer, you also have to have a little bit of artistic outlet for your creativity as well. It took me a long time in, in corporate America to, to realize that everybody's an artist. We just have different technique to express how we feel. And it's exciting seeing Georgia Tech actually embrace that now. That's different than it was uh, some almost 40 years ago. So now it's STEAM and not just STEM. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> they have put the A in yeah, STEM. I love it. That's awesome. Yes, I love that a lot. That's great. Well, Michael, in addition to the art photography and this public awareness project, you have a business of your own. How has the pandemic affected your business? It's actually affected it pretty profoundly. I discovered uh, there was a time when my photography with people was limited to just photographing my daughter in her performances in high school. And then for, for my artistic bent, I would go out and photograph nature and national parks. And I realized along the way that I didn't have to ask for permission to take a photograph of a tree. <laughs> 
and it was never going to tell me no. And so in a form of my own personal development, I started photographing people. And then in that process, I discovered that I love working with other people to create a piece of art. Portrait photography is a, a minimum of a two-person art form. It takes the subject and it takes the photographer together, working together to make a piece of art. Photographing people is a very live, in-person process, which has been very much impacted by the COVID crisis. And so my business is not real. I'm not making any money right now at my business. I'm basically uh, using uh, some of the same funds that, that the artists are trying to get their hands on. There are actually people that are really using that money to stay in business. And that's what's keeping my business going. And this project was kind of a way of actually doing something while at the same time helping the community. But the naked truth is, is I'm not making any money doing this process. Atlanta-based photographer Michael Boatwright. There will be more information about his series, Dark Houses Atlanta, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. In 2012, the mural appeared at the corner of Jesse Hill Jr. Drive and Auburn Avenue, a portrait of the late Congressman John Lewis. The word hero was painted above the civil rights icon. Sean Schwab is the artist who designed this six-story celebration of John Lewis. He's a member of the Art Collective Loss Prevention. Sean Schwab, welcome to City Lights. Hey, how you doing, Lois? Great to talk to you. Thank you. How was this project conceived? Probably in 2011, my wife and I had just started dating a year before we actually painted it. We would have conversations often about how much in Atlanta, specifically that sweet Auburn district, didn't have many visual landmarks, you know, they didn't have, didn't really tell Atlanta's incredible civil rights history. And, you know, we just kind of wish there were more vibrant pieces of public art that really showed and told the story that, you know, to our community, but also to the visitors and really ground zero for the, for the movement and really how Sweet Auburn was one of the first thriving black business districts and the birthplace of Dr. King and the civil rights movement as a whole. And, you know, we just had a lot to be proud of and learn from our city. And we really wanted to give, you know, something back to the city. And one of our community murals that we wanted to do was to honor an Atlanta leader. And uh, my wife and I talked about how great it would be if, you know, children growing up in that area and just in Atlanta in general could walk by a mural and learn from it and identify with it and hopefully feel pride from it. So we, we settled on um, honoring John Lewis. And did you... Did you have to ask permission from the building owner to paint it? I mean, this is six stories high. Yeah, well, it was, uh, the way it came together, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't too complex. I mean, it was, it was fairly simple. Um, we chose a simple design. It wasn't too complicated and, it, you know, let viewers take it in from afar, from the interstate even. And uh, we basically did it on a shoestring budget and had a, uh, a few donations cover our materials and the lift rental and uh, our friend Gene Kansas was kind enough to secure the wall for us. And um, our friend Matt Waydant also was with the John Lewis campaign, got John's blessings. Councilman Kwanzaa Hall helped with the permit and then we were pretty much set with it. 
So no one came to you and commissioned this of you and your wife? No, no. We, um, well, what, what really happened from the beginning was uh, we had talked about for a long time honoring John Lewis. And then one day we ran into him while we were actually painting a mural at a local uh, at Binder's Art Store at, at the old Limelight in Buckhead on the side of it. And uh, he walked in with his aide and basically all of us dropped everything and we ran over to meet him and uh, we introduced ourselves to him and he was just so cordial and awesome. And, uh, and then in like subsequent weeks, we even ran into him and we just, we knew it was time to honor him and we basically took it upon ourselves and we didn't get any traction for a while. And then stars aligned and we met random people that put us in touch and we made it happen on a shoestring budget and just, just kind of willpower. Please tell us how you decided on this particular image of John Lewis. He looks very pensive. His brow is furled. He was always thinking. Well, we, it, it's from a photograph, and we just, I just always liked how, you know, in this particular picture he was speaking out. That's something that he had always done. And I thought he would like an image of himself doing what was important to him versus just posing. And uh, we also like to include the quote that we put in there and a little information about the heroes we paint. So there's an educational aspect. And uh, I, I just really like the quote and it's more relevant really today than it ever has been, you know? Oh, yes. The quotation that is featured on the mural is from Lewis's speech that he gave at the March on Washington in 1963 with his signature painted underneath. Would you recite the quote? It's famous. The excerpt from the quote was, uh, it's so beautiful. It's, I appeal to all of you to get into this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes until the revolution of 1776 is complete. Hmm. When the mural was officially dedicated, you joined Mr. Lewis to add the last touch, the dot above the I in Lewis. Sean, what was that moment like? I mean, it was, honestly, it was surreal. It was just really an incredible honor. You know, my wife and I both conceived it and for her and I, many people, it's more meaningful to meet someone of his integrity and bravery than anyone I can imagine, any famous people, anybody. And, you know, it's when it was when we were in person, it's really true what they say. When you meet him, you talk to him, you feel like, you know, you feel like you're the only person in the room. And he was just so humble and sincere. And, you know, you just wanted to give him a big hug. Uh. He's this gentle but so determined and brave and unstoppable, you know, the most unstoppable person I think I've probably ever met. And all he's been through, all the abuse, everything, he, he always maintained such high hopes for us and for America. And it's just, it was really just truly rare to meet somebody. And he's so inspiring. Our rabbi, since retired Rabbi Alvin Sugarman, was a close friend of John Lewis, and I think regardless of one's spirituality, I think something that Rabbi Sugarman said will always stay with me. In a conversation with John Lewis, he said, this man is the closest thing to the embodiment of God that I have ever witnessed on this earth. Wow. Yeah. Regardless of religion, it attests to what you were saying about this aura of him. And even as recently as 2012, with all of his achievements and renown, I read something about his response to your mural, John Lewis said that the full implication of the mural struck him when he caught a glimpse of it while driving by on the connector. Oh. 
Growing up in a little town in southeast Alabama, I never would have dreamed that there would be a mural of me on the side of a building in Atlanta that is so big it could be seen from the highway, he said. This was only eight years ago, and yet another example of his humility. Since his passing, the John Lewis Hero Mural, as that painting by you and your wife has come to be known, has served as a memorial. People bring flowers and cards and gather there to mourn. How can public art help bring a community together? Well, I mean, first of all, we're, we're really happy the mural still exists after eight years. It's been really amazing to see that people have had a place to go to show their love and respect for him. And uh, our original goal was to inspire people, you know, and give them something to be proud of. So it's, it's definitely in that regard exceeded our expectations. I think bringing people together through public art, you know, with, with this series, the hero series that we do, we, um, we've really taken care to consider the surrounding communities. And I, I know you can never please everyone, but with the Hero Series, I think it's important to, to respect and honor the community of people where the mural will be since they're, you know, those are the ones that are gonna, who are going to be living with it. We do a lot of commercial work, but our hearts are really in the social justice-related work that we get to do. And, of course, that's what the public responds to the most and uh, the art that inspires us and helps us to be our best selves. Hmm. How many artists are in your collective loss prevention we have from at any given time four to ten different people in different cities that we call on when we do these types of murals as well as our commercial work would you talk about the name you chose loss prevention loss prevention is kind of we get that question a ton. my wife's not the biggest fan um it's kind of a play on words and it's more uh you know who who likes to nobody likes to take a loss Nobody likes to take an L. It's just a funny name that's kind of stuck and probably could be altered to get us, you know, <laughs> probably go a little further with a different name. But yeah, it, it strikes people in different ways. So I didn't think it was peculiar. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I thought it had to do with preserving ideas and preserving respect. I love the open-endedness of it. That's, yeah, it's open for interpretation. I, I love that. Sean, you've said there are murals all over town that are just art for art's sake and that you wanted to do something with meaning. Sean Schwab, thanks to you and your collective for demonstrating the power of public art. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. Uh, you might be next on the Hero Series lineup. <laughs> oh, uh, it would have to be just a fraction of the six-story mural, but I'm very flattered that you should think of me in those lines. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Artist Sean Schwab. Check out his mural of John Lewis downtown at the corner of Auburn Avenue and Jesse Hill Jr. Drive. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Coloring books aren't only for kids. Adult coloring books have been available for several years and highly recommended to relieve stress. No wonder the activity is popular with all age groups. Coloring is fun and engaging. With that in mind, Explore Georgia, part of the state's tourism department, has created a coloring book to help parents engage and stimulate kids' imaginations without leaving the house. Megan Hood leads creative content for the state's tourism division. She joins me now with Mariana Costa of the Blue Sky Agency in Atlanta. Thanks for zooming in and welcome to City Lights. 
happy to be here. Thank you for having us, Lois. Before we get to coloring books, what resources can we find on the Explore Georgia website? On the Explore Georgia website, you can find all sorts of travel information about every part of the state of Georgia. ExploreGeorgia.org is the primary source for all travel in Georgia. So you can find inspiration about new ideas and places to travel all the way from the mountains down to our coast, through all the cities, through the southern part of our state. Um, we have lots of wonderful travel ideas and trip inspiration there. Mm. Now, how has the website been modified to accommodate those still sheltering in place? Yeah, when COVID-19 first started um, impacting Georgia, we looked at the Explore Georgia website and realized that it was really important for us to share travel information um, related to the pandemic, but we also started realizing that there was an opportunity to still continue to inspire people and share information about this beautiful state with them. You know, people were looking um, and spending more time on digital media and their social feeds, and we realized really quickly that there was an opportunity to give them a respite from all the craziness um, that was happening in the world and to inspire them with the beautiful um, sights and sounds and places throughout the state. I have to confess, I got rather lost with enjoyment looking at the different spots around the state from the coastal isles to the mountains and Savannah and, of course, Atlanta, and then the Providence Canyon, that's someplace we've never been where I really want to go. Yeah, it's really stunning. And there's, I mean, I was born and raised here and I'm still discovering places in the state. And that's really um, one of our biggest moments of pride is when we can introduce even native Georgians to new places they've never seen before. So we can explore Georgia from home with this guide. Would you tell us about the official 2020 travel guide? Yeah, absolutely. The um, 2020 Travel Guide um, from Explore Georgia is a comprehensive resource to travel the state. This year's guide is really special because the vast majority of photography in the guide comes from real visitors who have traveled the state, and it's all of their photography, so it's all user-generated content. Even the cover of the guide comes from real people having real travel experiences, and that's really important to us because um, nothing is more interesting than, you know, getting a recommendation from a friend and knowing that they've been to that place and really enjoyed it. So using other people's photography in this guide was really important to us. There is a page on the website titled, Learn From Home with Georgia Chefs. Who are some of those chefs? Yeah, so we were able to source information from chefs all over the state. There's a great chef right here in Pont City Market. He was giving lessons about how to make great sandwiches. There's um, a chef down in St. Simons Island who was helping people learn how to make pasta. So, you know, these wonderful chefs throughout the state are really helping Georgians, you know, while they're at home, learn new tools and skills. So it's been really fun to kind of follow along with them. Mariana, how did the collaboration between Explore Georgia and the Blue Sky Agency come about? Well, we knew through this time that none of us were really experts at marketing. <laughs> you know, we were in this new normal, but we knew we had to stay connected. And we really wanted to make sure that even though we couldn't tell them to go out and explore the state, they still stayed engaged in exploring from home. That was the big challenge, right? So what we wanted to do through things like the coloring book and engaging the chefs, because we knew that social activity and digital activity was up something like 30, 40%, and that's how people were connecting with each other and staying informed. Things like uh, knowing that the kids were home, right, from school and parents needed things to do, knowing that everybody was cooking more, which is how we engaged the chefs. Uh, we wanted to play off this new normal to keep people connected and keep them engaged and bring a little brand closeness so we couldn't tell them to uh, go out and explore the state, right? We really had to be humans here 
and connect not as marketers, but as humans. And I think we came together really well to do that. Oh, I love it that you're acknowledging marketers aren't human. <laughs> yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> we are. We are sometimes. <laughs> How did Blue Sky identify the places in Georgia to highlight for the coloring book and the digital puzzles? Well, we had to listen, right? We, we listened uh, to really know what people were missing, the places that they were wanted to explore after this was all over. We do have some knowledge on a few things that, uh, you know, like Driftwood Beach, and we had put out some content of 30-second videos of spots in the state that you could go tune in on our social channels and listen to the, the water come in at Driftwood Beach or, you know, the mountains of Georgia. So, we picked some beautiful places that we knew people loved, but also places that would cue somebody wanting to go to explore after this was all over. Mm. Do you think incorporating digital elements will remain a part of Explore Georgia? Yeah, digital elements have always been part of our marketing mix for Explore Georgia. It's an incredibly important element and when we were developing all these new tools within the Explore Georgia from Home campaign, we really had an eye on that for the future to make sure that we could continue to use these really creative and innovative approaches. So for instance, you know, the coloring pages are definitely something that we could print out and offer to guests when they come through our welcome centers. We have 11 welcome centers throughout the state at all the borders. So that would be a great resource to hand to a family when they come through to look for information and pick up some brochures and take a rest on their trip. And we can print out those coloring pages at home. Yes, absolutely. You can print the coloring pages at home if you go to exploregeorgia.org forward slash from home. You can download the pages and each page has um, a little factoid on it. So they're great as an education piece for kids, but they're also really appropriate for adults to color in as well. And the coloring pages are also made from real um, photos that guests took, that visitors took when they were visiting the state. So you've got some from the aquarium, Okefenokee Swamp, Tybee Island, all of people's favorite places throughout the state. Yeah, I can't wait to color the Callaway Gardens page, and I also like the Tiny Doors and the Providence Canyon page. Yes, Providence Canyon is one of my favorite coloring pages. It's really, really fun, especially if you get your watercolors out. Megan Hood is with the State Tourism Board and Director of Brand Strategy for Explore Georgia. Mariana Costa is the Executive Creative Director for Blue Sky Agency. There's more information about their virtual programs on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about a new exhibition at the High Museum called Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.